everyone. We are going to start in a minute or two just to let everyone enter the Zoom room. And we can take a minute to pause until then. Hey, welcome everyone. My name is William Edelglass. I serve as Director of Studies here at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, Massachusetts, next door to the Insight Meditation Society, IMS. And before I introduce Joseph, I'd like to give you some sense of how our time together will unfold. First though, let me say that if you like to have closed captions, that is, if you'd like to read a little bit of text that is capturing most of or some of what will be said um, in real time, there's a link on the right side of the bar on the below the Zoom picture. And it says live transcript with a CC just above that. So press that button and you should get the live transcript. So after my introduction, Joseph will lead a short meditation, and then we will have a conversation exploring the question of Nibbana. And that conversation will be grounded in the article that Joseph published in the Insight Journal, the BCBS Journal last fall. And then we are going to invite questions from participants to join the conversation. You can pose a question by pressing the Q&A button in the middle of your bar at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And you should feel free to pose a question at any time and we'll get to it perhaps if there's space and time. If you're having any technical difficulties at any point, you should feel free to send an email to contact at buddhistinquiry.org and I'd like to thank my colleagues, Julia, Cassie, and Eva for making all these logistical processes work so well. So I think for many of you, Joseph Goldstein does not need an introduction. He is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, and also the co-founder of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. There are many ways of telling the story of Buddhism in North America from the 19th century when immigrants first brought Buddhist practice and ritual from East Asia. But many ways of telling that story of Buddhism in America would include Joseph for his role in founding these institutions that supported the teaching and practice for so many in the insight meditation tradition and for his own teaching over the last five decades, which has had such a profound influence, <laughs> long time, maybe almost five decades, I should say. <laughs> um, but that's had such a profound influence on so many teachers and practitioners of insight meditation in the West. So 
Thank you, Joseph, for all of that and for being with us tonight. And maybe I can hand it over to you now to lead us in a meditation. Thank you, William. Uh, yeah, so we thought to just sit for a few minutes, a uh, chance to settle in and kind of uh, settle into a uh, Nibbana-friendly mood. Uh, preceding our discussion. Uh, so sit, take a comfortable, you know, posture for meditation, <clears throat> whatever that might be. <clears throat> and close your eyes if that's how you usual, usually sit. Maybe start by taking a few deep breaths, just as a way of settling into the awareness of the body. And then letting the breath find its own natural rhythm. And in breathing in, know you're breathing in. In breathing out, know you're breathing out. It's really that simple. Keep in mind that it's not a breathing exercise, but an exercise in awareness. So we can allow the breath to follow its own natural way. No need to force it or manipulate it or change it in any way at all. Sounds appear, simply be aware of hearing. There are other strong bodily sensations you can open to the feeling of those sensations, making them the object of your mindfulness. Feeling them, noticing them. And notice what happens. Do they get stronger? Do they get weaker? Do they disappear? When no longer predominant, can settle back into the awareness of the body breathing.
and particularly be aware of any thoughts or images that arise in the mind. As soon as you become aware that the mind is thinking, you might make a soft mental note of thinking or seeing if it's an image. And notice what happens to the thought or image in that moment of awareness. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. <clears throat> breathing out, know you're breathing out. When you're ready, you can open your eyes, re-engaging with the world around you. Thank you, Joseph. <coughs> so I am going to put a link to Joseph's article in the chat. And if you'd like, you can follow that link and look at the article that we're gonna be having a conversation mostly based on. And maybe to start that conversation, Joseph, you can say why why you choose to use the word Nibbana. We hear a lot about Nirvana and Buddhism and also beyond Buddhism. Why, what's special about the word Nibbana? Why are you using Nibbana? Yeah. So I use the word Nibbana quite consciously. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, Nibbana is the term in the Pali language and Nirvana is the term in Sanskrit. And there were two reasons I, I wanted to use <clears throat> The Pali term Nibbana. And that is the Sanskrit term Nirvana has really uh, entered into our, our English lexicon in a way. You know, there are Nirvana restaurants and rock bands and coffees and perfumes, you know, and so the term Nirvana has taken on a kind of significance in our culture that is somewhat removed from its Buddhist meaning. You know, and so when we, uh, you know, in the course of conversation, we might uh, refer to some experience of, oh, that was nirvana. You know, it's as if it was some uh, 
ultimate fulfillment, you know, of sense pleasure or desire, uh, the best of something uh, in that realm. Of course, that has nothing to do with the real meaning of uh, nirvana. And so I wanted to use the Pali word um, to kind of separate us out from the colloquial usage uh, that is now current. And the other reason is that nirvana or nibbana um, can refer to different things or can be understood in different ways uh, in some of the major Buddhist traditions. And so, for example, in the Mahayana tradition, which often uses the Sanskrit term nirvana, uh, there are subtle differences of understanding than in the usage in the Theravada tradition, which uh, uses the Pali term. And I wanted to make clear that in the discussion, both in the essay and this evening, uh, I'll really be talking about it from within the context of the Theravada tradition. Um, so I think it would just be good to be clear about that. And as I say, in the other traditions, in the, in the later traditions of Buddhism, uh, the term nirvana has taken on uh, some different nuances and meanings. So we'll be talking about it within the context of Theravada Buddhism. Great, thank you. <clears throat> now the way we use the word nirvana reminds me of how we might describe a chocolate cake as divine. <laughs> exactly. Um, which is different <laughs> yeah. from an almighty divine being who might create the universe. So, it, in my experience, we don't hear the term Nibbana used very often in Western convert Buddhist Dharma centers. Um, it's there, but it's not explored too much. And I'm wondering if your teachers talk much about Nibbana or at what point in your own practice, Joseph, Nibbana became something that was important for you to think about deeply. Mm -hmm. Uh, my teachers uh, definitely talked about it and referred to it. Uh, and it is true that in the West, uh, especially with Western teachers, it's not talked about that often. Um, and in reflecting on it, I, I think it's, it's um, two reasons came to mind why, why it's not talked about uh, as much as perhaps it should be. Um, first is the psychology of many Westerners who practice uh, sometimes, and this is a generalization, but oh, over 50 years of teaching, uh, I've seen it a lot. Uh, kind of the Western minds as we get into practice, depending on how the practice is presented, uh, we can really get caught in a kind of unhealthful striving, you know, and uh, a misunderstanding of what it means to have a goal, you know, and so there can be a lot of expectation and um, striving in a way that really keeps, keeps the mind unbalanced. And so very often, I think, in the way we present the teachings, we try to uh, minimize that uh, tendency of over-efforting. 
So I think that's one reason. It is really important, I think, and to, this would be a really helpful distinction, I think, for people to make. Uh, it is possible to have an aspiration without an expectation, you know? And so to have an aspiration for the practice and for that reason, I think it is helpful to talk about Nibbana, you know, as setting the direction for where our practice is going. Uh, but it gets tricky if it becomes an expectation and a, a wanting We may not even know it as much as we should, perhaps. The other reason is that uh, I think people who may not have yet experienced it, teachers, uh, may be reluctant to talk about it because it is still outside of their experience. But I think that for anybody who's in a teaching role uh, and who has quite a lot of experience on the path, whether or not a person has experienced Nibbana, if we're familiar with the teachings of the Buddha, even on a conceptual or intellectual level, or we have a clear understanding of them, in the teaching role, it's actually possible to guide people even to places beyond our own level of realization. And there are stories of this, even from the Buddhist time, there was one, uh, one monk uh, who was not realized, he was not enlightened, but he had a very clear understanding of the teachings. And it's said that he led many of his fellow monastics on to full realization, to arhanship, even though he himself was not realized. And so in a way, it points to the importance, not only for teachers, but for really all of us uh, who are interested, to engage in some study you know, of the teachings because it broadens our understanding <clears throat> excuse me, beyond our personal experience. And just as a little plug for the study center here, this is very much what the study center you know, is uh, holding, trying to convey the teachings uh, you know, in their breadth. Um, so for myself, uh, I did actually have a glimpse of Nibbana early on in my practice. Uh, and so for me personally, it has been the pole star of my practice almost from the beginning. Uh, so it's always been a kind of the central uh, point of understanding of where the practice is leading and what, uh, what needed to be done to really uh, actualize it fully. So for you, there's a way in which it functions as an aspiration, perhaps, but it's something that's grounded in your own experience and might be different from having an aspiration without having that experience. Uh, it is true, and it probably is different. And yet there are people who have not yet had the experience who, for whatever reason, whether uh, just their paramis, their background, for whom the possibility of awakening, the possibility of liberation is the driving force. Uh, 
that that is why they're practicing. Um, and in understanding Nibbana as <clears throat> coming to the end of suffering, I think that can be a motivation for all of us. Yeah. Sometimes we can have an experience of a kind of expansive equanimity, a mind that feels spacious and non-reactive. And um, is that, I mean, I think that's something that is relatively common for people on retreat. And I'm wondering, is that a glimpse of Nibbana or is that something else? Or how would we know if we had a glimpse of Nibbana? Uh, <clears throat> that is something else because there are, there are many beautiful states of mind, you know, that can arise in the practice. And sometimes in the beginning, it may be a glimpse of them as we deepen in our practice, we can become more stabilized, you know, so that we uh, have easy <coughs> access to those states. But those beautiful states of mind are still conditioned phenomena. They're arising out of certain causes. Uh, the causes and conditions change, the mind state changes, as we well know. Uh, so they are very impermanent, they're conditioned. And unlike Nibbana, they don't have the power to uproot defilements. So in a way, it's like uh, we're taking a little rest, you know, in a pleasant mind state, but in a wholesome mind state. So it's, it's definitely a wholesome place to be. Uh, but then when we come out of it, uh, then we're still subject to the same um, conditioning of our mind and the working of various uh, neurotic patterns and the power of the defilements, you know, being activated. So all that comes back. Uh, so there's just two, two other little points to this question. One is uh, expressing kind of... Uh, the value, even though it's not liberation, even though it's not Nibbana, when we're in a state of profound equanimity, and this, this is itself a particular stage of Vipassana, you know, it's called mature equanimity about all formations. It's said that when we're in that state, and this is before realization, but our practice has reached that level, we're getting a taste of the mind of an arhant, right? The mind of a fully enlightened being. So we don't want to confuse ourselves and think that it is that state, but it's a taste of that because the stillness and the equanimity and the clarity are so profound. Uh, so it's, it's a meaningful experience, even though it's not yet realization. And then on the other side, it's just to point out that there are many exalted and powerful states of mind that have not uprooted defilements from our mind stream. And one example, a famous example from the Buddhist tradition is the Buddha's cousin Devadatta, you know, who he was a monk who had deep concentration, he had developed all kinds of psychic powers, but he was very jealous of the Buddha and committed a lot of uh, really unwholesome, unskillful acts. 
which points to the fact that even exalted states of mind or great powers of mind does not imply purification of mind. And that's the particular power of Nibbana. That's helpful. And it leads us on to maybe trying to get at what Nibbana is as opposed to these other states. You, in your essay, and if, for those of you who may be looking at the essay at home, I'm on page four in the PDF. You um, talk about a couple different methods. One you describe as the Sutta method and one you describe as the Abhidhamma method. Maybe just to start, um, what's, what's the Sutta and what's Abhidhamma? Right. Okay, so th this will be a, an extremely brief uh, clarification of these two terms. So as most of you probably know, the suttas refer to the Buddha's discourses. You know, in the course of his long life, he would be meeting with many different people and individuals and groups, a lot of different circumstances. And the suttas are an account of his exchanges um, in these situations with people. And in them, and when we read the suttas, it's all expressed in very conventional language, in ordinary usage. And so when we read the suttas, it refers just as an example to our ordinary way of perceiving things and people. So they refer to men and women and self and other. So all of these are the conventional uh, ways we speak and that's the language the Buddha used. In the teachings in the suttas, again, it's in very ordinary language that anybody can really understand where he laid out the path of practice as being the path of ethics, sila, you know, and of concentration and mindfulness um, and of wisdom and kind of the wisdom that develops uh, seeing the impermanence, seeing the unsatisfying nature of impermanent things. So all of this is uh, not difficult for us to understand, you know, conceptually, uh, which is what makes the suttas so powerful. They're very accessible. The Abhidhamma approaches it in quite a different way. It does not use <laughs> this conventional language to describe our experience. Rather, it uses very philosophical, we could say technical language, and more universal in the sense that it's not language appropriate to a particular time and place, but rather it's a very detailed analysis of the constituents of what we call man or woman or self or person. So it's really looking at um, what in the, in the Buddhist uh, understanding are called the more ultimate realities, not the conventional way of understanding, but rather what, what are the constituent elements that make up experience. So for example, there's a very detailed, very detailed exploration of the physical elements 
you know, of <coughs> describing the sensations and how they interrelate to one another. There's a very detailed description of what are called mental factors, all the different qualities of mind that arise in different combinations along with every moment of consciousness, like greed or hatred or love or compassion or concentration or delusion. All of these are the mental factors the mental qualities which color consciousness. And so the Abhidhamma has this list of 52 mental factors. You know, so it's, it's very specific and very, uh, <clears throat> very detailed using this philosophic or technical language. And then there's an explanation of consciousness itself and all the different kinds of consciousnesses that may arise. Uh, so for me, uh, I studied philosophy in college and so my mind has a philosophic bent. Uh, I'm not by any means at all an Abhidhamma scholar. So, but my first teacher, Manindraji was, and so he presented the teachings a lot through that lens of Abhidhamma. And I found it really helpful because, for example, just having the framework of the different mental factors of mind that color our consciousness and naming them you know, really helps to be able to recognize them in our own minds and to see them as being impersonal, non-personal. You know, which helps us not identify with them when they're arising. And of course, this is this is the whole path leading leading to nibbana, leading to freedom. Uh, so there are really two different levels of description, um, and people may be drawn to one or the other or both. Uh, certainly, people get enlightened without any knowledge of the Abhidhamma at all, and for other people, it may be the doorway to greater understanding. Um, but I think it's helpful just to know that there are these two, uh, <clears throat> two big, uh, in, in, the, in the tradition, they're called the two big baskets of the teachings. Uh, yeah, so the discourses, the suttas, and the Abhidhamma, or the Buddhist psychology. Great, thank you. Um, as a philosopher myself, I really appreciate the way you framed Abhidhamma. So with that as a background, then um, do you want to say a little bit about what you mean by this distinction between the Sutta method and the Abhidhamma method um, in your essay? It's not so much a difference of method, but a difference in description. Uh, um, and so in, in the Abhidhamma way of understanding, it really analyzes <clears throat> in a very precise way, almost in a mind moment way, all the various stages of insight that we go through walking on the path and how the mind is functioning moment to moment as it goes from 
our usual mundane experience of the world to that moment it's talked about as crossing over to the super mundane or, or to the experience of Nibbana. So the Abhidhamma method, the Abhidhamma description really talks about it on that very fine granular level of what's happening in the mind. In the Sutta method, it's much more general. It doesn't really talk that much about uh, you know, the mind moments and how they're unfolding and how they condition, excuse me, one another. They talk more in general terms about, uh, for example, the factors of enlightenment, seven factors of awakening, you know, those qualities, which when they're developed, become the ground out of which the experience of Nibbana can arise. So it's really just different ways of describing what it is that's happening. One is more granular and one is more, what's the opposite of granular? (laughs) Larger. (laughs) Gross. Yeah. My seven-year-old daughters, we were actually just describing the difference between granular and gross yesterday and they weren't familiar with that way of thinking about gross. One of the things you say on page five um, is that we need to distinguish between Nibbana itself as unconditioned from what would be a conscious experience of Nibbana, which is conditioned. That sounds like it could be confusing. I'm wondering if you could (laughs) flesh that out a little. Yes, it is confusing. (laughs) It can be confusing. So I want to give an analogy or, uh, that came to my own mind in this experience. You know, and it's really what popped into my mind just at the moment, just afterwards. And the, I don't know if they would call it a simile or but the thing that popped into my mind was, this was the experience of zero. Now, just as a little sidebar here, <clears throat> uh, much later, you know, I came across a book called The Nothing That Is. And the title totally intrigued me because it reminded me of uh, a description of Nibbana, The Nothing That Is. But the book is actually <clears throat> a history of the number zero. I only got past the first few pages because it started to get very mathematical in its uh, discussion. But the first few lines of the book really uh, captured captured my uh, interest. It said, when you look at zero, there's a bit of a paraphrase, but it's mostly, mostly how it was written. When you look at zero, you see nothing, but look through it and you see the world. And so, the experience of Nibbana, we could think of as the experience of zero. That is, in Buddhist terminology, it's called the stilling of all formations, right? The cessation of becoming, the cessation of this process of change. 
Now, going back to your original question, the knowing of zero is a conditioned phenomena. That's part of, uh, <clears throat> or within the realm of our knowing, of our awareness. So we know zero. But zero itself, there's no knowing in zero. There's no knowing in that stillness. So it's the mind, the conditioned mind of knowing taking zero or Nibbana or the unconditioned as its object. Uh, yeah, and so this is the difference. So that knowing is called supramundane consciousness. Just for those of you who are aspiring poly scholars, the terms are Magapala, which, which are those kinds of consciousness super mundane because it's not taking a usual object like a sight or a sound or a sensation as its object. It's taking Nibbana as its object. It's taking what is unconditioned as its object. But the knowing itself is still within the realm of conditioned phenomena. So the question I have for you now, is this, did this make it more confusing or less confusing? <laughs> so, in order to have the awareness of the unconditioned, there are certain conditions, or the aggregates or senses, a certain amount of learning, a certain amount of practice. So those are all conditions of the consciousness in order to have the consciousness of that which is unconditioned. Yes, yes. So another way, uh, just another example, which is, uh, I, think it's, I think it's actually in the text where it says, you know, if we want to reach, you know, a, a mountain as, as our goal, and we walk along the path to the mountain, the path doesn't create the mountain but it leads to it. And so in the same way, all the conditions that we develop in our practice are like the path to the mountain or the path to Nibbana, but the path does not create the mountain and the path does not create Nibbana. It just creates the conditions for us to experience it, to realize it, to say to reach it. Uh, A lot of the language that we use, and you reference some of it in your essay for describing Nibbana is essentially negative, unconditioned, unarisen. Um, there's a way in which language, there's something paradoxical about language that on the one hand, it's, it ensnares our minds and we get attached to conceptual frameworks that make it hard to open up to that which might be unconditioned. On the other hand, it is necessary as part of the path to the unconditioned to teach. Um, there's, a, there's a text by, or attributed to Nagarjuna, the Indian Buddhist philosopher, where um, in the text, the Buddha articulates this paradox and then says, thinking about the paradox, the Buddha laughed. He laughed with all his might. 
there's something funny about this idea that it's beyond language and yet he has to teach using language. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's one of the reasons in a way that uh, when we read the text, <coughs> Uh, we find Nibbana described in two different ways. You know, one is, uh, as you say, using the negative, unformed, unborn, uncreated, unconstructed. And that is a very powerful um, reminder for us in the practice. And it, it's expressed that I think in a, this is a classical description of uh, some ancient Indian philosophical paths uh, that use the expression, not this, not this, not this, not this, right? And so using the unborn, unconstructed, unfabricated <laughs> can be a reminder to us to not get attached or not cling or not be identified with that which is constructed and which is born, and which is fabricated. So it's really pointing us in the direction of Nibbana, of what Nibbana is. It's on that, it's not that. But then in the, in the discourses, there's also some very beautiful uh, descriptions in the more positive sense, like the highest peace or an island, an island of re refuge, a shelter. Uh, and it goes on, there, there are many, many synonyms uh, for Nibbana in this very positive sense. And that language I think is very useful because it's very inviting. You know, when we begin to uh, relate to, we, we might say the positive descriptions of that experience, it sounds very, as I say, inviting, appealing, worthy. Uh, I mean, who, who among us would not like to experience the um, place of safety, of refuge, of peace, you know? So, so that description can really be on with leading. Whereas the other description is reminding us we might say of how to get there, which is not being attached to anything which is constructed or is formed. Um, yeah, so both, both kinds of descriptions I think are really helpful. Yeah. Speaking of who wouldn't want to experience this, reminds me of your story in the article about your teacher, Deepa Ma, and how <laughs> she was able to enter into a fruition state when she sat down in her airline seat. Do you wanna share, maybe say a little bit more about that and maybe the, what the distinction is between a fruition state and a path state? Right. So uh, <clears throat> this, is, this is a distinction that's uh, made in both the suttas the sutta's description and the Abhidhamma description, uh, but they have slightly different interpretations of those terms. But for purpose of the discussion right now, I'm going to use the Abhidhamma model. So path and fruition, as I mentioned before, 
they refer to those super mundane consciousness that takes Nibbana as its object. Now the path moment has the power to uproot defilements in stages uh, from the mind stream so they don't arise again. So that's a very powerful function of Nibbana. It, it actually uproots the causes of our suffering. The fruition stage is like the enjoyment of that piece, but it has no uprooting function. According to the Abhidhamma description, there's a path moment, just a single moment for each of the four stages of enlightenment. And at each of the stages, there's one path moment, it uproots or weakens certain defilements. Immediately following the path moment is the fruition state. And this happens for everybody, at least for a moment, who experiences the path. But for those who have very high, con deep concentration, strong concentration, they have the ability to re-enter into the fruition state uh, for, can be for long periods of time. And Deepama, a wonderful teacher from, from India, she's uh, just an incredibly inspiring being for me. Um, she had this amazing uh, level of realization, uh, both of awakening and also of uh, her depth of samadhi and uh, everything that came with that. So she had the ability to go into the fruition state uh, for many hours at a time. Uh, and in that state, as I said, as I said in the essay, the, few, the couple of times she came to America, she would get on the plane, settle into her seat, go into meditation, <laughs> into this fruition state of ultimate peace, and then emerge just as the plane was landing, you know, completely refreshed and happy. Uh, it made me quite, uh, dare I say, envious, <laughs> having, having suffered through some very long flights to India and back. Uh, so it just shows, it shows the power, uh, you know, the power of, of certain minds that can do that. But it's important to realize that it's the path moment that has the uprooting function. And the fruition moment is um, kind of the enjoyment of that. I just one more, one more yeah. point. I, I don't want to get into it now, but for those people who would like to pursue this a little further in the essay, uh, I do go into a description of the sutta way of understanding path and fruition, which is slightly different than what I just said. And so just for those of you who might have interest in that, uh, you, could, you could read the essay and I explain that in some detail. Yeah, yeah there's more detail in the <laughs> essay as these things go. And one of the, another, um, approach to Nibbana that you discussed in the essay is 
the Thai forest approach. And I'm wondering if you would like to take a little while to say a few words about the Thai forest approach and ways in which it might be distinctive in comparison to what you were characterizing as the Sutta, the Abhidhamma approaches. Yeah, so it's not so much a different approach as a different description of the experience because uh, <clears throat> those people who are in the Thai forest tradition, I think are also uh, rooted to some extent or other, uh, probably more in the suttas than the Abhidhamma, but I think they really understand their way of describing this experience of Nibbana and liberation uh, as being rooted in the suttas. So this is not separate from that. But one of the differences of description, and it's one of the differences that in some way motivated me uh, some years ago when I, when I wrote the book One Dharma, uh, and also in writing this essay, because the description that some of the Thai forest teachers use seemed on the surface quite different than what I understood from my Burmese teachers and from the Abhidhamma way of describing things. And one of the key differences, at least on the surface, uh, was that in the Thai forest tradition, uh, there's often uh, a description of Nibbana as being an unconditioned awareness, right? And so there's an awareness outside of our usual, you know, sense consciousness. an awareness that is unconditioned. Uh, and that's the way Nibbana is sometimes described uh, in the teachings of many of the great Thai forest masters. Now, in the, other, in the other traditions, the descriptions, as I mentioned earlier, awareness is always considered a conditioned phenomena even when it takes Nibbana as its object. So this was always a little confusing to me, you know, because it seemed to be, one seemed to be saying, Nibbana is awareness, an unconditioned awareness. And the other seemed to be saying, Nibbana uh, transcends the awareness. Right? So this, this became, uh, this became a source of a real struggle for me in understanding. And, you know, for many people, it might seem like just a philosophic, uh, some philosophic subtlety that didn't have much meaning for them. But for me, in the kind of in the throes of my practice, you know, and being so committed to a practice leading to liberation, it felt like this koan, you know, is Disney Bana awareness of some kind? Does it transcend awareness? And it felt like here I'm devoting my life to the experience, you know, of this. 
how do I reconcile these differences, apparent differences? So one of the ways, and I go into this uh, in the essay, one of the reasons there can sometimes be confusion as we read the descriptions of the path and realization from different traditions and different teachers is because the same word can refer to different things. So just as a, as a mundane example of that, uh, and something that comes up a lot in Dharma discussions, uh, you know, when we talk about the path of practice as becoming free of desire, and then people will often ask, well, what about wholesome desires? Uh, you know, the desire for enlightenment, the desire to become more compassionate. And so it's the same problem because the word in English desire means different things. Sometimes it means the desire of grasping and clinging and greed. And sometimes desire means the aspiration to something. I have the desire to do something. And that could be either wholesome or unwholesome. So Nibbana, and this took me a while to understand that the term Nibbana can refer to two different things. It can refer to what I call zero, right? The nothing that is. And I want to emphasize the isness of it, even though it's a nothing that is, because it's precisely because there is an isness to it, that is, there is, there is a reality. To it, that's why it has the power to uproot defilements. Right? If it was merely nothing, it would have no particular power. It would just, it would just be like a blank, right? But it would not have any particular effect on us. But nibbana has a profound effect. You know, it, it transforms our stream of consciousness, uprooting defilements. So there's a power to zero. That's the isness of zero. So one meaning of nibbana, one thing it refers to, is this unconditioned, unborn, unformed reality. The other meaning of nibbana, it refers to the mind that has been freed of defilement the mind that is free of greed and hatred and delusion. And so we could describe the state of a fully enlightened being, you know, in whom these defilements have been completely uprooted, free of all greed, free of all hatred, free of all ignorance. So that mind itself can be described as Nibbana and people experiencing Nibbana in that way. So one meaning is the mind free of defilement, and the other meaning is that which accomplishes the freedom from defilement. Uh, so as I read more and more about the Thai way of describing things, uh, 
I came to uh, conjecture that when they're speaking about Nibbana as being an unconditioned awareness, they're really talking about the second meaning, that is the mind unconditioned by greed and hatred and delusion, which, which could be called Nibbana, which is a different uh, perspective or a different angle than using Nibbana to describe the actual experience of zero, of the unborn. Um, so in a way, even though the descriptions are quite different and initially caused me some confusion, you know, how do I reconcile? Is Nibbana transcend awareness? Is it awareness? Uh, this just seemed a way of really holding both. You know, they're, they're, they're not contradictory. And that, and that was really helpful because this points to another aspect of the teachings, which I think is really, for me, has been tremendously helpful. And that is to see all of the teachings, whether it's the suttas, whether it's the Abhidhamma, whatever tradition it comes from, to see all the teachings as skillful means for liberating the mind rather than taking them to be metaphysical truths. Because if we're taking the teachings to be metaphysical truths, then if there are teachings that seem to be in contradiction to one another, we immediately go, well, who's right and who's wrong? You know, which one is correct, which is incorrect? But if we take the teachings all as skillful means for liberating our hearts, liberating our minds, then we can really assess, okay, does this teaching help to free my mind from craving, from grasping, from clinging? Does this teaching help to free my mind you know, from those forces? Even if they're saying different things, even if they're saying contradictory things, if they serve that function, then it's helpful. It's, it's, we're, we're moving forward on the path. Um, so it's, it's almost the famous, the famous image for this is you know, the image of uh, somebody pointing to the moon. And if we want to see the moon, we don't keep looking at the finger. The finger is just pointing to it. So, and there are many fingers, many hands, many fingers, which can be pointing to the moon from a lot of different places on this planet. Uh, but do we, I mean, it would be quite foolish if we say, oh, that finger's correct and that finger is incorrect. <laughs> you know, it's more, are we using it to look at the moon? And so I think that's a very helpful way of understanding the teachings, right? Understanding them as skillful means for liberation. Um, skillful means for non-clinging. Oh. oh, thank you, Joseph. I think this is probably a good time to turn to the questions that are, um, that have been posed in the okay, just be, before we do that, yeah. William, I, I want to just do one little sum up of okay. 
Great. Uh, just very, very briefly, uh, I want to, we talked about it, but I just want to kind of bring it all together of why this whole discussion of Nibbana or experience of Nibbana is so important. It's not just Buddhist philosophy. You know, when the Buddha, he often characterized his teachings by saying, he teaches just suffering and the end of suffering. He wasn't teaching a philosophic system. It was very practical. All of his teachings are geared to understanding the truth of suffering, which is the first noble truth. It's cause, it's end, and the path to the end. So what is the cause of suffering? Fundamentally, the cause of suffering in our lives are the different defilements that are arising. And greed and hatred and ignorance and desire and you know, all the manifestations of those three basic roots. It's very obvious, I think, that we can't control all the circumstances of our lives. However, we are in control in a very fundamental way of how we're relating to those circumstances. So that's up to us. That's not up to trying to necessarily change the conditions of our lives in terms of freedom, but changing how we're relating to the conditions of our lives. That's where the freedom uh, really lies. So understanding it in this way and understanding that it's the defilements in the mind, the forces of greed and clinging and grasping and anger and hatred and fear and ignorance, understanding that it's these forces in the mind which create suffering for us, then we can see and appreciate that the uprooting of these forces in the mind leads to our happiness, leads to our peace. And it's precisely the experience of Nibbana which has the power to uproot these tendencies. And it's only the experience of Nibbana which has that uprooting power. So that's why it's not just a kind of theoretical, philosophical uh, discussion. It has tremendous practical import in terms of our own happiness, which is why, you know, we could say enlightenment, it's been described as the highest happiness, the highest peace. So that, that's the reason why we're even engaging in this discussion. You know, it has, it has a lot of meaning in our lives. It's not just Buddhist philosophy. The Buddhist philosophy is pretty good also. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So, thank you, Joseph. And we'll, we'll come back in case, at the end, in case there's anything that you might want to say that we didn't get to. Mm -hmm. one, one of the questions that was posed was about the relationship between compassion and Nibbana, which you touch on towards the end of your article. And I'm wondering if you want to address that. Yeah. So to me, this is, this is one of the most enriching aspects of understanding and of the path to see the intimate connection between wisdom and compassion, between understanding and compassion. So I think it's helpful to understand how compassion arises in our hearts and our minds. And it arises 
when we're willing to come close to suffering. You know, if we're, if we're protecting ourselves from the suffering in the world, whether it's our own or you know, the people in the world, if we're avoiding or denying or just not willing to see it, not willing to come close to it, that really taps the wellspring of compassion within us. Because compassion arises when we actually open to the suffering that's there. So one of the things that helps us to open to it is when we become somewhat less self-referential, less self-centered in our lives. You know, if, if we're only concerned about ourselves, then we may be more likely just to not want to deal with the suffering that's out there. The realization of Nibbana, the, the first, even the first glimpse of it, uproots what in Buddhism is called the wrong view of self. We really, we really have seen the selfless nature of this whole process. You know, we've come out of a self-centered life <laughs> to a life where that's not at the heart of things. And there's much more engagement and responsiveness to the situation around us. And one of the great Tibetan masters, Dilgo Kenzi Rinpoche, who's a Dzogchen master of the last century and very renowned and uh, just an amazing being, an amazing teacher. He wrote, he wrote something which uh, I really love because it expresses it so well. He said, when you realize the void nature or the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others will dawn uncontrived and effortless. You know, and I love that because it really points to the fact that the less self-centered we are, the more responsive we are to the suffering that's in the world. And for me, I've come to appreciate the description of compassion, not only as a particular feeling or emotion, but as the quality of responsiveness, right? It's just, so for example, you know, we see somebody who's hungry, the natural impulse might be to offer them food, right? And so the less, the less the notion of self is at the center of our understanding, the more responsive we are. And the experience of Nibbana has uprooted the view that there is a self at the center. And so it really uh, just strengthens our compassionate response uh, in beautiful ways. So these the compassion and wisdom I see is really very uh, interrelated. There are several questions that are following up on what you described as glimpsing Nibbana early on and suggesting that sometimes in talks, it feels like a state that one arrives at a final goal. 
But in in the article also you talk about we can have these moments that are mnemonic um, or a glimpse. Do, there, do you want to say a little bit more about? Um, well, there's several questions asking about your own personal experience. You don't have to go there if you don't want to. But the uh, but just what it might be like that one has these momentary senses of nibbana and some letting go of the defilements versus, oh, this is what we do. We arrive at this final state and then it's done. Right. Well, I think uh, there's a lot in that question and some very important implications. Uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned briefly, enlightenment within the Theravada tradition is described as happening in stages. There are four stages of enlightenment. And at each of the stages, different of the defilements are either uprooted or significantly weakened. So what's important to realize is that even after that first glimpse, and certain of the defilements are uprooted at that point and then in a way, the most significant or a couple of the most significant ones uh, is the view of self because there has been the experience of the zero center at the heart of things. There's not a self center at the heart, you know? And so it's that experience of the zero center which uproots the notion, the view that there is some core self at the center. And one of the other defilements that's uprooted at that first glimpse um, is doubt. You know, doubt about the path, doubt about where the path is leading because we've experienced it for ourselves. You know, and as Fico Analio, <laughs> he used the example, if you've, if you've had the experience of having your hand in fire, even for a split second, you know what it feels like and nobody can, nobody can tell you it doesn't feel like that because you've had the experience. And that's why even at that first stage, it said that people become independent in their understanding of the Dharma, right? Because it's based on a personal experience of, of Nibbana, of the unborn. However, and this is what's so important for all practitioners to understand, is that there's still many defilements left. You know, there's still aversion, there's still anger, there's still fear, there's still desire, uh, there's still restlessness. So this first glimpse, even though it's hugely significant, is not in any way the end of the path. And in fact, we could almost think of it as the beginning of the path. Uh, but this is where some people get in trouble because if there's not a clear understanding of this, people might have a genuine realization and then maybe think they're done, think that everything's, everything's finished, not recognizing that there's a lot more work to do. Uh, and so sometimes can get into justifying behavior that's perhaps not that skillful because they have this notion that, oh, well, I'm fully enlightened, so anything I do must be okay. Not realizing that, yeah, that it's possible that 
it's possible that their glimpse was not actually genuine, but it's possible that it was, but still incomplete. You know, still, there's a lot more to do. Uh, yeah, and this certainly resonates with my own experience. Uh, there's a lot more to do. So that can help us understand why there might be a teacher um, who could have profound realization, could have deep awakening, and yet act in ways that, for lack of a better term, we would call problematic, certain kinds of abuse, or that there'd be a misunderstanding, perhaps, of what happened. Well, I, um, I'd just like to clarify that point a little bit, yeah. because I think there is a line here. I think that after a genuine moment of realization, even the first glimpse, there are certain egregious behavior that cannot happen. Because even though there's still desire, there's still aversion, there's still, they have been weakened to a certain extent. They're still there. So they will manifest in ways that could be construed as unskillful behavior but they don't cross a line uh, yeah and <laughs> i'm trying to think of, of a clear way of describing what that line is <laughs> but just to, to to use some general terminology uh there would not be egregiously harmful behavior and it said that if the, if the realization is genuine, even as one may be manifesting, you know, aspects of desire or greed or aversion, uh, there's not a hiding of it. There's, you know, there's the acknowledgement, oh yeah, this, you know, I've done this, this is unskillful, there is still desire or aversion in the mind. So there's just a quality of openness about it. So if that's not, if the behavior is really egregious and there's no openness and acknowledgement of it, that would make me question whether the realization is genuine or not. Mm -hmm. So there's, that was just a kind of subtlety of- That's a pretty clear criterion that could be applied to a number yeah. of people who have been thought of yeah. as, as really helpful yeah. teachers for some people. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, one of the questions that was posed was about the way in which Nibbana is sometimes framed as extinction and that it feels like something that might be fearful or, um, I mean, in some ways you've already addressed this as the highest happiness, but I'm wondering if there's anything more to say about um, to say about that. Right. Uh, so I think that can be understood in a few different ways. First, that's not a term that I would often use, but it's one one does come across it, you know, and reads about it in the text, uh, in some translations. So one way of understanding it would be, it's the extinction of the defilements. So that's, I think, easier to understand. 
The problem with using that word to describe the zero of Nibbana is that there's an implication that there is someone becoming extinct. And the whole tenor of the Buddha's teachings is that there's no one there in the first place. All that's happening is this ongoing flow of mind-body phenomena, mental physical phenomena arising and passing away in each moment. And there's no one to whom it belongs. What we're calling self is that flow of changing phenomena, right? It's, it's not that there's a self who owns it or who has it or to whom it belongs. So then if we understand that, that there's no self behind it all and that the reality of our experience is the very rapid rising and passing away of the six sense objects. So it, I find this also, this is kind of an interesting aside. We think our minds, we think our lives are so complicated, you know, and confusing and whatever. <laughs> really only six things are ever happening. There's sight, sound, smell, taste, sensations in the body and mind objects, thoughts and emotions and, you know, maybe images. That's all that's ever happening. <laughs> but out of that, we create an enormous story about ourselves in the world, which are just more thoughts. That's just one of the six objects. So sometimes I like to think of our, the experience of our lives as a six piece chamber orchestra. You know, and it's just sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts and emotions. And sometimes the music is harmonious and sometimes it's really discordant, but it's just that. Right. So there's no, there's no self behind it. Okay. So just that's a little background. Through the Vipassana practice, through our practice of mindfulness in a really sustained, you know, and, and really profound way, it's like we're experiencing this whole mind-body process as this flow of changing phenomena. And we're seeing the change very, very rapidly. You know, there's, there's nothing which really lasts uh, more than a moment. It's just continuing, it's a flow. It's like a river flowing. You know, there's, there's nothing static at all. When we see that, we can have another understanding of the first noble truth, which is often translated as suffering, dukkha, but it, suffering is a limited description because a lot of what's happening in this flow may be pleasant, right? And we don't experience it as suffering. However, through the experience of the radical impermanence of all experience, we begin to really see the essentially unsatisfying nature of this constant flow of arising and passing, arising and passing, nothing less, nothing less even, nothing less for very long. It's a very quick process of change. 
And so just, just uh, as a little exercise, you know, which I found very helpful to show how we can get ensnared, seduced by the flow and what kind of insight which help us release from being seduced. You know, when you think back to maybe all the beautiful experiences you've had in your life, and you know, there are many, most of us experience lots of pleasant things in our lives. But when we look back in the past, where are they now? You know, they were pleasant in the moment, but they're completely gone, completely gone. And yet, when we look ahead in our lives, we're always living in anticipation of the next hit of enjoyment of one kind or another. You know, maybe sense pleasures, it may be emotional states, whatever. We are always looking forward to the next hit of experience that somehow is going to fulfill us. Forgetting that we've already had endless numbers of these experiences, which have not been ultimately fulfilling. They are fulfilling in the moment. So I'm not saying they don't bring a certain kind of happiness, but they're not ultimately fulfilling because they're constantly changing. So when we have really dropped into this flow of experience and are experiencing them through the lens or with the understanding of what is a very basic teaching in Buddhism is the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfying because it's impermanent and non-self. Then we realize that in this flood, there's no rest. There's, there's not really any peace. So then when we, when we absorb that fully, which takes time this is because this goes against our condition. You know, we're, we're swimming upstream in terms of the conditioning in our, in our minds. But as we understand this and experience it in a very profound way, then, as I mentioned earlier, I think the cessation of becoming, the cessation of this continual flow, which doesn't belong to anybody, so it's not the cessation of a self. There's no self in the first place. All there is is this endless arising test, arising test, arising test of phenomena. So then the cessation of that flow is really, is the experience of peace, you know, of, you could say the highest peace or the highest happiness. And a point which I'll make now, but I explore in more detail in the essay, is that this experience of the cessation of becoming is its own reality. So it is a reality. It's not, it's not simply the absence. It's its own reality, which has power and it has the power to uproot defilements you know and so it's to appreciate the nothing that is 
right? There's an isness to it. Uh, but of course, you know, we can talk about this, and hopefully, it's of interest, and and even more hopefully, perhaps helpful. But it's it's really important to understand that this whole discussion is for the purpose of inspiring us to experience it because then we know for ourselves. So it's not believing anything. You don't have to get into, you know, I agree with this, I don't agree with this, you know, and getting into kind of an intellectual uh, debate about it because when we know from our experience, that's when, that's when real faith arises. Uh, so I just want to emphasize the, the practical experiential nature of everything we're talking about. Thanks, Joseph. There are a lot of really great questions, and I apologize to all of you who posed them that we will not get through them. Some of them are addressed to some degree in Joseph's article, and there's been requests for more of this kind of thing. There's this, so maybe it'll be another opportunity. Um, but we are coming to the close of this time together. And Joseph, I'm wondering if there's a question that you wish you'd been asked or anything else that you feel that would be helpful to say about Libana before we close. Uh, I've said, <laughs> I think I've made a lot of the points that I would like to make, uh, but this is just in, maybe in a way of summing up. Um, especially given, in a way, the prevalence now of mindfulness being taught in a secular context, which is tremendously valuable. You know, and it helps people a lot, uh, but it's really missing this piece. <laughs> Nibbana is not often talked about, uh, you know, as mindfulness is being taught, uh, you know, in the, in the secular context. Uh, so I just want to emphasize that the Buddha laid out a path, you know, I'm sure most of the people listening are familiar with the Eightfold Path, one of the just core basic teachings of the Buddha. And it's a path that leads somewhere. So it, it's not that it's just, you know, these eight different things and we practice with them and they help in our lives, which they will do. So it has that function, but it's more profound than that because the Eightfold Path is a path and the path leads to the experience of Nibbana, you know, and the Buddha was very explicit about this uh, in his teachings. And so I would say for those people who may have an interest or be inspired or have an aspiration, you know, for this level of practice, for this step of practice, I would say to really um, investigate more thoroughly each of the steps of the Eightfold Path, you could really do some study with this, you know, and then really see how you can put 
each of those steps into practice in your life. And so this is really a way of transforming one's life into the path. Uh, and it's the path that leads to Nibbana, that leads to awakening, it leads to freedom. Um, maybe this, this could just be a moment to give a plug for the study center. Um, you know, it's institutions like the study center, which uh, just play this very valuable role you know, in the transmission of the teachings, you know, from one culture to another, of uh, acting as a container, as a preserver of the teachings and a discussion and an exploration of the teachings. And the study center also depends on support from all the people who benefit from it. So I would just encourage you, if you like, I mean, this teaching tonight has been offered completely freely. Uh, but if you're so inspired and would like to be supportive of the study center, there will be a link someplace. I don't think it's being put up in the chat or, uh, and it would certainly be appreciated because it helps to support everything the study center is doing. Uh, and I would love to have further discussions about this. Uh, quite happily, I'm about to begin my own uh, self-retreat now for hopefully three months. So maybe uh, upon emerging, I'll have some new understandings uh, to share. Uh, so thank you. It's really, really been a pleasure uh, just exploring all of this with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joseph. And also thank you. Some of you have already offered Donna and we're really appreciative, appreciative of that. And uh, there's a link now in the chat if anybody else would like to. Also, um, I was thinking earlier tonight, Joseph, when you were talking about some of the benefits of study and understanding, the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, and the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, BCBS, we are actually going to be launching a 16-month joint program that starts in March. There are, I think, four places left and the teachers will be meeting tomorrow. And I'm going to put a link into the chat. There it is, exploring the heart of freedom, um, dharma.org, there's a link in the chat. And if you would be interested in a program that will have small groups and be meeting together, every two weeks online and then five retreats over 16 months with a wonderful group of teachers. I would suggest that you fill out the application before 4.30 um, tomorrow afternoon, East Coast time. So thank you so, so much, Joseph. And thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.